0: I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Ross, good morning.
1: Good morning, Jill. Last night, I thought we would have a simple meeting. We looked at the agenda. We said, you know, this is just going to be a report on um, essentially a couple of two consolidations of schools. And honestly, Jill, the the meeting actually turned out to be a lot more robust. In the superintendent's comments, she highlighted the summer learning and We have seen a lot of offerings of summer opportunities, but not necessarily the signups that we would want to see. And and Jill, this is really important that we've talked about this. Every student should be engaged in a summer opportunity. There's so many great summer jobs out there for our high school students, and there's so many great enrichment opportunities for all of our students in BPS. And we've said that every student should have a plan. So the superintendent last night highlighted that they've added additional 17,000 seats to summer learning. Um, and that, in fact, it's great to have so many sign-ups so far this year up to, I think they're at 4,500 signups. Let's play the quote from the superintendent.
2: We've added capacity to serve um, upwards of 17,000 students. And that includes a range of programs. Fifth quarter, which we do with uh, Boston After School and Beyond. Early focused for our youngest students. High school credit recovery. Um, the expanded school year uh, for uh, students. Uh, in special education and um, the exam school initiative just among a few of those. Uh, we launched the registration earlier this year. This, this came up upon parent request to try to understand what was available and to get students registered. And so we actually launched it March 22nd. Um, and that was um, that was almost a month early. Uh, and then here we are, um, you know now um, you know in late April, and we've already registered about 4,500 students.
1: I actually tried to register my kids for summer learning opportunity, learned a few things. One, number one, it's actually a new system where you have to log in, create an account, um, know all bunch of information about your student ID numbers and so on that are actually not readily available to many families. And two, not all summer learning programs are actually listed. So I learned that the one I wanted wasn't actually on the offered. And then the- th- Well,
0: wait, you you knew they were offering it. It just wasn't listed. Right,
1: right. And so, yeah. so I actually had to email the summer learning office and they added- that the site that I wanted? And then the third, do you actually rank your sites? And you're not guaranteed your top site, you may get your second or third ranking. And so, you know, some of these programs are like, there's a lot of them, but you're not really sure which one you're going to get.
0: Well, that's interesting, because when the superintendent talked about the summer program, she was very excited and talking about how families would have more choice. I sort of assumed in listening to that, that you would get your choice. Also, there was also the point that um Brandon Cartet- Hernandez made after she presented, and he was talking specifically about acceleration academies, but saying, you know, I hear a lot about enrollment or how many opportunities there are. We don't hear a lot as a school committee about the outcomes of those programs. Are kids getting anywhere because they're enrolling in extra um, days of school throughout acceleration academies or through additional extracurricular programs over the summer?
1: To your point, like, it would be great to see Um, If there's any differences between sites and different uh, programs that have out that have um, stronger outcomes. And let's continue to to, uh, make sure those are are, are, those programs are continued. Um, Jill, we moved on to public comments last night and uh, we heard, you know, a couple of a couple of parents testified about some quite concerning things that are basic services. You know, one parent testified about the special education process and really concerned about. Um, his child getting the appropriate services, kind of heartbreaking to hear his testimony. And then we heard another parent who signed up to testify at school committee because she her bus is not coming to pick up her daughter and she doesn't know how to get the bus. These are parents who are so frustrated that they spent their time waiting to testify at school committee. This is, again, symptomatic of larger issues of communication and systems in the Boston public schools. And then, Jill, we heard a larger group of parents last night testify Uh, around these school mergers. And we heard the same concerns, right? We heard that there's concerns around communication, that there's concerns around authentic engagement, right? So families um, to some degree are saying, look, you're engaging us about the color of the building or about a playgrounds, but like we wanna be engaged in the real content.
0: Well, I think they want to know ultimately, which I think is what most parents want to know, is what, what 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 should the expected outcomes be?
1: That's right. and right. be clear about that and transparent about that. Yeah. Let's play a quote from uh, one of the parents of this of this group around the merger.
2: It's concerning to us that the Shaw Taylor merger, the merger that's going to affect the most black and brown families, is the only school merger in the city of Boston that is forging forging forward at full speed, regardless of what family voices are saying loud and clear. Further, the Shaw-Taylor merger is currently the only school merger that's being voted on with no promise of facility upgrades, renovations, or a new building.
1: So clearly, Jill, there's a lot of work to be done. The committee talks about a process, and then we hear from families about how that process is actually not being followed. Jill, the only report last night, well, you decide, I guess, what you want to call it. Was it around mergers, closures, or we have a new word from the mayor's office uh, for shutting down schools, which is joining school community.
0: Well, it was interesting to me that there was, a, you know, a bit of conversation about what do we call this and how important it was to call it something that sounds nice, and we find this out over the course of several hours you know we're we're heading into a period where all of this funding that came from the US government is running out we're going to hit a cliff the soft landings that you know exist in several schools are not going to be able to exist anymore and so ultimately the district is going to have to shrink in terms of size of buildings and which means that schools will have to be closed now it's being positioned as merging schools together and that's fine that is what's happening but ultimately the devil is in the details of how school communities get merged together and what options are families offered if they don't choose to go to the new merged school there was there was so much convoluted conversation (laughs) last night it was complicated to follow but we're going to try to pull out what we think are the important points of this conversation
1: let's start with really a a very clear tonal shift from the boston public schools team Mm. Let's start with a quote from Ms. Stanislaus, who is leading the efforts around capital planning for Boston Public Schools.
3: BPS has responded to decline in enrollment through its hold harmless policy, which has spent 117 million to continue to operate classrooms with fewer and fewer students. As BPS prepares for the end of of federal ESSER funding, it will no longer be possible to continue the hold harmless policy without critically examining our school's overall capacity.
1: So Jill, this is BPS is finally acknowledging that it doesn't make sense to keep funding under-enrolled schools and classrooms. And this is a fundamental shift from what we've heard for the past two years where it's been an additive. It's been, don't worry, everything's fine. Um, We're going to get more students eventually. Everything's going to be okay. We should just hire more staff members.
0: If you think about it, on the edges, especially when it was conversations with folks who really focused on the finances of the district. You know, Part of this was because of the pandemic and part of it was because we had the money. But, you know, it still feels like, especially if you're in one of these communities, that this is happening now and this is happening, you know, hard and fast. It's good that they're having some sort of public conversation about this. I would call this a very high-level conversation. There were a couple of other reasons, though, given for why they were doing this presentation tonight.
1: So the next reason for merging schools um, from Ms. Dennis Loss, is, is this one about inclusion.
3: In school year 23-24, several do- dozen elementary schools will not have the physical space to maintain a double-strand inclusive educational program including the Shaw and the Philbrick these smaller schools are generally not capable of expanding inclusion district wide this leads to an over concentration of students with disabilities in a small number of larger elementary schools
1: so the the question here Jill is is it about soft landings is it about the fact that the this the, the district cannot afford to keep so many classrooms with, that are like less than 50% full? Or is it about inclusionary practices and the new agreement with the Boston Teachers Union around ensuring that all of our students with disabilities are included with their general education peers? This was further complicated, Jill, by a statement by the mayor's advisor for youth and education, Rebecca Granger. And here's what she said about mergers.
2: So like, for example, with the Shaw Taylor community, one of the things that was raised is that there have to be resources that stay in the community even after consolidation. And so one of the pieces that's in the proposal is um, that with the consolidated classrooms, and again, it it could look different ways and Drew showed how there were different configurations and that those need to be figured out with the school communities. Um, But let's say for example, that uh, two classrooms were consolidated That would be um, a little over $300,000. And that money will then stay with the Shaw Taylor.
0: That comment doesn't even seem right. They're not going to, you're merging to save money. You're not merging to create a basket of money to use again.
1: One of the critical things that they decided was that money that was saved would just be given back to the school design team and the school community um, to use somehow. I think the confusion as well is, you know, we saw Ms. Stanislaus say very clearly, this is about the cliff. This is about, we need to merge schools. And by the way, this is not just about the Shaw and the uh, Taylor and about the Philbrick and the Sumner. This will be about a lot more schools. And we didn't even get into that last night. Well, um, as,
0: as they try to right-size the
1: district, Right, for that, sure. but massive, massive disruption. And is it about inclusive practices and how do we implement that? And then Dr. Stephen Alkins tried to clarify the long-term implications here of this. And he asked this question
4: this strategy definitely like stems the bleeding. I'm just thinking about over, over a longer period of time when as enrollment continues to decline, I mean, I, I mean obviously it's not a cure-all for, for, for this. So if I'm understanding the problem, like also correctly, we'll be able to afford more programming, more specialists being able to fund those types of positions. But still, if enrollment continues to decline, you're, you're still going to have this issue.
0: They're trying to get clarity on exactly how does funding get affected by all of these moves. In addition, there was a lot of conversation about the process, and it does seem like the mayor's office is taking a leadership role in this process. So here's what Ms. Granger said about how this process will work. And don't forget, this is describing a process that will net to a result that will come to fruition in the school year, 24, 25. Here's the description of the process.
2: Okay. So think about this in an eight-week cycle. Um, Week one, week three, and week five would be design team meetings. And week seven would be a community meeting. So it's constantly on this eight-week, two-month cycle. We have heard the need for increased engagement and advance notice, so by building in a routine process, it allows school communities to know when the next community meeting will be far in advance.
0: This maybe was more confusing than what school committee wanted, and so um, member Cardette Hernandez tried to clarify this with a question.
4: Just quick question before you go, just to further clarify on. So if I'm looking at slide 10, those are cycles.
2: Um, they are. So there's, um, you know, the eight week bucket of time that I was talking about. Yep. OK, yeah. so like, yep. So in the proposal, um, like if you look, for example, at the academics, climate and culture. Um, do you see how there's the May, then a dot, then September? Mm. That actually is two eight week cycles,
0: honestly, that conversation, Ross, kind of made it more confusing to me, as did the slide that Miss Granger presented because everything was different sizes, and at one point, you know one of the other school committee members thought that she was presenting on the equity tool. That part of the presentation needs a calendar
1: <laughs> so, well jill let's let's just try to make sense of this for a second though there they it it appears that what what miss granger is saying is that there's six buckets of work that should happen with mergers. And I, and this is not just about the the Philbrick and the Sumner or the Shaw and the Taylor. They're trying to create a model I believe about the future of how to do this, how to do mergers or joinings of school communities going forward.
0: The the thing I don't love about this notion that there's going to be a bunch of joinings is that if they If they really are going to move to inclusionary models in all schools, then the way that I would think about it is how do we create new schools that are inclusionary and which kids will go to those schools? And how do we create a set of schools that seem high value to parents? I don't hear any conversation around how do we create a competitive situation where the world is a stage for all students, but this is the time to do it because we can have some schools and so they should be good ones.
1: Um, I'm going to bring us back to reality of what I think was presented last night, which was six buckets of work. Each bucket of six topics will take about eight weeks or maybe maybe 16 weeks to work on these different content buckets. Mm-hmm. And essentially, they're going to come out with a design of a school.
0: Yeah, I and, didn't understand that. I mean, is it eight weeks for one? bucket or is it all the buckets happen over eight weeks and then they go back (laughs) and they start again and they refine. I didn't understand what was going on. That's why we need a calendar. Calendar is really important in this. Regardless,
1: it does look like each design process Mm -hmm. um, from the mayor's office perspective would take about a year. Okay. And I'm not sure that that is totally shared with the BPS team, but I think from the mayor's office, they're kind of saying, look, this is the process we want to take. We want to move forward. This would be the joining of school communities. Let's just be clear. When you have two principals and two secretaries, custodians, teachers, you don't simply join all the staff members and they become one. They're talking about consolidation. They're talking about saving money. They're talking about half full classrooms becoming full classrooms. So basically, one teacher at every whatever grade level or so on, they're going to leave that school community. And they're kind of saying that, don't worry, everybody, the school local school team will make these decisions. That's not the case, Jill. The reason mergers are really hard and uh, or whatever we want to call them, configurations or joinings or whatever the terminology is, is that essentially there are people who have to leave those school communities uh, ultimately. And how those decisions are made are really difficult. And let's start with the principal, Jill. Who will be the principal or the school leader of, these, of this new merged community? whoever is that person, should be leading this process. It should not be led from the mayor's office. It should not be led by the superintendent. It should be led in the local community. They should be leading the process with as a, new a leader. I,
0: no, I agree with you. It does get complicated when you go about things in this way because you have winners and losers. And um, it, it, I don't think that it needs to be that way, but it takes a lot more leadership to put leaders that you trust in place, to reimagine what a school looks like so that the end game is that kids are successful. Correct. And, and this is much more, this is just going to end up creating more battles, right? It's a very net zero approach to spending. It was frustrating to listen, listen to. We heard it in public comment, right? And, and the school committee members kept trying to square it up. There's a lot of parents and communities coming at them Complaining, and then there's this very political presentation that we saw that's saying, "Okay, everybody, calm down, because we have buckets and we have squares and we have chairs and they're pretty colors, and it's all going to be okay, right?" And and, it's eight week cycles, and
1: then they're saying there's no calendar. Then they're saying, uh, "School committee, we're going to ask you to vote next uh, school committee meeting on this." So, so Jill, here's Dr. Alkins. um, And this is by by the way, this is a new business, right? So the presentation concluded, and then Dr. Alkins um, raises this topic.
4: One of the things that has always struck me is that as a district, we don't really have a framework for what equitable collaboration actually means. Um, And really starting with a set of agreed upon principles from the community, established by the community, or with the community um, in BPS, it has always seemed like it's been a sort of one-way exchange. Even though we've offered channels for bidirectional communication, it has always seemed like it's just been BPS sort of feeding. This is what's going to happen. Here's where is your opportunity to make your voice heard. After
1: the, the presentation by BPS and the mayor's office, I really wanted to hear from the families who are affected by this decision around these mergers right. to weigh in. We heard earlier in public comment that they're not satisfied. Right. School committee members are listening to this sort of new plan that they're not really sure if there's, as you pointed out so well, is it concrete? We don't really know. Um, and Dr. Alkins is saying, we got to be more transparent here, guys. Yeah. Like, that wasn't it. He's so right in, like, how do they make a decision? How do they vote yes when they don't really know how the, the stakeholders at those schools feel and if they agree, if this is the best way to move forward.
0: He's saying, let's listen to the customer, let's yeah. understand what they want, let's then infuse that with what we know about how to educate children and take care of them. Let's put that all into a plan that is inclusionary, that considers the percentage of English language learners and the percentage of poverty in this district, and, and let's think about new schools, with these communities that we can invite them to and let's give them options if they don't want to go there.
1: Dr. Alkins is, I think Dr. Alkins is fundamentally asking to change the way that they're making decisions and and how they operate as a school committee. And I, for one, am in strong support of that. To join, merge, reconfigure, close schools is incredibly difficult work. And to do so with the commun- with communities that already exist working together to create something new makes it that much more challenging it is a complicated goal to achieve and i think you put forward a good argument for why they should create new um, schools and new entities because this is so difficult to achieve with existing school communities.
0: But here's here's the, here's kind of the top line on what should be happening at school committee meetings. It is none of the stuff we're talking about. And what should be happening in school committee meetings is there should be a set of objectives that school committee says we want you to hit. We've got a cliff. We've got issues with the budget. We, and we're going to have to merge schools. So here's what we want to hear between now And I guess 12 months from now. Right. right. And in each school committee, there should just be a report.
1: Yep, I I hear you. You, It's a simplification of the role.
0: Yeah. Because the otherwise what we get is something that doesn't make a lot of sense to the listener and or I think the participant. And we um, it's contrary to what you hear in public comment. So it just doesn't feel like what's really happening.
1: Doesn't feel right so jill i I just want to point out to the messaging that we heard last night is a fundamental shift from messaging we've heard in the past um we we for the first time have heard bps and consistently talk about uh decreasing enrollment and they didn't say it stabilized in in fact they're sort of projecting for further decrease enrollment and by the way if we continue to um confuse families or create more uncertainty around will more schools merge in this process or more schools close or join, we, we're we going to see further decline in enrollment. This is not a stabilization of the school system. Um, and also all these sort of different competing um, reasons of why we need to do this, they need to be rectified. There needs to be one unified message about what is the plan and why is this the plan? What is the reason for this plan? Is it inclusionary practices? Is it saving money? Is it local control? What is it? Um, and lastly, I'll just comment, Jill, uh, we heard from the superintendent last night that she added... Another staff member, a very senior staff member, we also heard in in, in other testimony that more people have been added to central office. If the case is that we need to uh, merge or rejoin schools because of financial reasons and half full classrooms, um, we need to really think about right-sizing central office. Simply adding people um, does not make it uh, better um, we need to figure out who the decision-makers are, who the implementers are, trust them to do so. Um, but just adding more and more people to a bloated central office, it, it kind of sends a different message to school communities that like you're impacted, but we're not. And that needs to be rectified.
0: And that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting.
1: We want to hear from you. If you have thoughts or concerns about how BPS is serving your student, please send us an email at podcast at org. That's org.
0: Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.